My name is Efren Salak. I am an associate professor Hello, of medicine in the Division of, of Infectious Diseases at Duke University. I'm your moderator, Amanda and I also have an appointment at the Durham VA Network. Healthcare System in the Emergency today, Department. We will be speaking with I'm here Dr. with you today Efron to be talking about who is an a presentation that was medicine, given at ID Week. The session was titled Health or Hype Genetics Update on Biomarkers in Management of Adult and, and Pediatric of Infectious Center Diseases. And the talk that I specifically gave was focused on the next generation of ID. Host response biomarkers. We will be discussing his session at ID Week 2019 about the next generation of infectious disease host response biomarkers. Thank you for speaking with me today, Dr. Salek. Can you tell us which biomarkers are in the pipeline for the diagnosis and management of infectious diseases? There's quite a few biomarkers that are in the pipeline, and uh, many that have already been evaluated along the way over the course of the past several years. And the way that I think about uh, a framework for understanding the various biomarkers that are being evaluated is what type of biomarker they are. And for example, the simplest type of biomarkers that, that most clinicians will be familiar with, uh, not just for infectious diseases, but for a variety of other syndromes, are single peptide biomarkers. So for example, a troponin to identify the presence of cardiac ischemia, BNP to identify the presence of volume overload or heart failure. And in the context of sepsis, people will be familiar with C-reactive protein as a peptide biomarker, procalcitonin, which was a major area of focus for the other talks in the same session, is a single peptide biomarker. But uh, I'm gonna focus a little bit more on ones that are not routinely used and trying to identify whether or not they may be useful. Beyond single peptide biomarkers, you can think about a panel of peptide biomarkers where one may be inadequate, perhaps a combination of biomarkers that each gives different kinds of information would be useful. And specifically focusing on peptide biomarkers uh, simply because the technology to measure proteins or peptides uh, is pretty well established with things like ELISA. Moving beyond peptide biomarkers, you can think about mRNA or host gene expression biomarkers. These are not in routine clinical use for infectious diseases, although they are in routine clinical use for other conditions, in particular oncology as well as uh, transplant. But I'm going to be talking a bit about mRNA-based biomarkers. And then the final area that I spoke about are non-molecular biomarkers, uh, things that look at other properties in the host's response to try and gain some understanding of what's going on with that particular infection. Great. Let's take it one step further. What are the clinical implications of each of these biomarkers? So in the single peptide biomarker category, I'm going to focus on really sort of two applications. One of them is sepsis, and the other is the discrimination of bacterial and viral infection. In the context of sepsis, most sepsis biomarkers are things that have been identified based on the role they play in what's known about sepsis biology. So for example, neutrophil activation is something that is known to be important in sepsis pathophysiology. And so if you find biomarkers that are indicative of neutrophil activation, that then potentially is a, is a suitable biomarker for sepsis. And in the talk, I really focused in on one, really mostly as an example, and that is CD64, which again is expressed uh, by activated neutrophils. There have been a couple of meta-analyses for CD64, which I highlighted. One of them was published by Lee et al. in 2013 in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases. And in a study of just over 3,900 patients, uh, this meta-analysis 
identified that CD64 had a sensitivity of about 76% and a specificity of 85%, specifically for the diagnosis of bacterial infection. However, a meta-analysis that looked specifically at the utility of CD64 for the identification of sepsis, and in particular, distinguishing it from patients who had SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, this particular study published by Ye et al. in 2019 in the Annals of Intensive Care found a sensitivity of 87% and a pooled specificity of 89%. So that certainly is an improvement and suggests that perhaps this may have some utility in the context of sepsis. Now, this particular biomarker is one that's been widely studied, but it's still not in routine clinical practice at, at most locations. And in 2010, there was a review published by Pierakos and Jean-Louis Vincent in the Journal of Critical Care. This particular review, even though it seems a little bit dated, uh, having been published in 2010, was a really interesting one because it highlighted hundreds of sepsis biomarkers grouping them based on their putative role in the underlying biology of sepsis and demonstrated, essentially reviewed the available literature for all of those different biomarkers. And the point that it really makes is that there have been many attempts going on for many, many years to try and to identify sepsis biomarkers. To this day, there really aren't very many that have made it into routine clinical practice. And some of the Constraints being that sepsis is a highly heterogeneous syndrome, such that a single biomarker is unlikely to be sufficiently sensitive or specific. There is some publication bias that overestimates performance of various biomarkers. Moreover, studies that describe performance of an individual biomarker will typically use thresholds that they define, meaning that thresholds are not established for most of these biomarkers, and that further complicates their, their application in actual clinical practice. And I think the final point is that while a lot of people are really eager and searching for a sepsis biomarker, when it comes right down to it, um, most people aren't willing to use one uh, because they're worried about the stakes of getting it wrong. What happens if I rely on this biomarker and decide not to treat this patient for sepsis? Obviously, the consequences are pretty significant. And so I think that's been probably one of the biggest impediments to the actual application of sepsis biomarkers even though the tests that we're currently using are substantially worse than these various biomarkers being developed. So things, for example, like a white blood cell count are really not helpful to identify patients with sepsis. And so there, there definitely has been progress in the sepsis biomarker space, but we're still not seeing that put into clinical practice. Moving on to uh, single peptide biomarkers for the discrimination of bacterial and viral infection. There's been lots of discussion about procalcitonin, uh, but really the one that I'll add into the mix is uh, one called MXA, or mixovirus resistance protein A. In contrast to procalcitonin, which is low in viral infections, MXA is increased in viral infections. And there was a great study by Engelman uh, published in Pediatrics in 2015 that looked at uh, just over 550 children and showed that MXA had a, a pretty good ability to discriminate bacterial and viral infection based on that increase in cases of viral infection. But there was still a lot of overlap between those two groups, and the, the AUC uh, for that particular test in their study was 0.89. And the other thing they did in that paper is they actually combined MXA with CRP, which tends to be higher in bacterial infections. And the combination of those two ended up giving you better performance than either alone. And it's that combination of MXA and CRP 
that forms the basis of the first multi-peptide test that I'll mention, uh, which is a test developed by a company called RPS Diagnostics, and the test itself is called the FEBRA-DX. And this is a 15-minute lateral flow assay that measures CRP and MXA. And depending on the combination of the levels of those two biomarkers, can indicate whether or not a viral infection or a bacterial infection is present. The test itself has been approved for use in Europe and in Canada, specifically in outpatients with upper respiratory infection symptoms who have been symptomatic for less than seven days or febrile for less than three days. And in that population, it has a sensitivity of about 80% for bacterial infection, a sensitivity of 87% for viral infection, and the specificities for bacterial infection was 94% and for viral infection was 83%. So we're seeing numbers that are pretty good. And, and considering this is an easy to use test, it certainly raises some promise for its application in the outpatient environment. The other multi-peptide test to mention is one called uh, the ImmunoExpert made by a company called Memed. And this is a test that measures three biomarkers. It's a combination of TRAIL, IP10, and CRP. And again, the combination of those three gives useful information to discriminate bacterial and viral infection. The test currently is about 100 minutes to perform, so not very convenient, but there is a 15-minute point-of-care test that's being developed by the company. It is indicated for use in Europe for febrile patients who have been symptomatic for less than seven days and are greater than three months old. One thing to highlight with this particular test is that all of the studies that have been published by the manufacturers of the test have excluded patients who end up with an equivocal score. And what I mean by that is the test reports results from zero to 100. And if you fall in the zone of 35 to 65, those are considered equivocal, which is fine. Lots of tests have equivocal results. But when they report their statistics, those patients are excluded from the analysis, which ends up overinflating their performance. Just to demonstrate that point, there was a study published in Lancet ID in 2017 called the Opportunity Study, where uh, they reported the sensitivity of about 87% and a specificity of 91% when those inconclusive results were excluded. But another publication by uh, Vanderdoss, published in Clinical Microbiology of Infection in 2018, found that when all tested patients are included, the sensitivity was 78% and the specificity was 73% much more similar to the sorts of numbers you see with procalcitonin. So it, it does raise some questions about how the test actually performs when all tested patients are included. So just not a, a grain of salt to take into account uh, when reviewing results of this particular test. Moving on to sepsis, there have been mRNA strategies and, and uh, just mRNA strategies in general are those that look at the patient's gene expression response. They're not trying to identify the pathogen but you can use signatures or collections of specific mRNAs that are differentially expressed in a manner that makes them indicative of the presence of whatever disease or clinical question you're interested in. And so in the case of sepsis diagnosis, there's a company called Immune Express that has a four-gene panel of genes that are differentially expressed and that allow them to distinguish sepsis from SIRS. Uh, this is FDA cleared, but not yet commercially available, and they're collaborating with BioCardis to place this particular test on the IDILA platform, which has a time to result of about two hours. The test works by assigning a band to each individual uh, sample that's run. The bands go from one through four, and the highest band indicates the highest likelihood of sepsis. The lowest band indicates the lowest likelihood of sepsis. 
one thing to highlight, and this is uh, evident in the FDA filing that the company provided, is the importance of considering race and ethnicity. So for example, when they ran the test on healthy white patients, they found that most of them tested in bands one or two, meaning the lowest likelihood of, of being diagnosed with sepsis. Less than 1% fell into the highest band. About 17% of healthy white patients fell into, the, into band three. But when you look at Asians, 44% of healthy Asians fall into band three, uh, which indicates a very high probability of having sepsis. When you look at black patients, 49% fall into band three and 29% fall into band four. So if you consider those together, over 75% of healthy black patients would be diagnosed with sepsis using this test. So obviously healthy patients aren't being considered for evaluation of sepsis, uh, but it does raise into question how to interpret a positive result in a black patient or an Asian patient, for example. Just again, something to bear in mind, understanding the characteristics of how the test has been validated when applying it to your own study population. Moving on from sepsis diagnosis, there's been a lot of work in sepsis subtyping, and this is an attempt to identify discrete syndromes that manifest as sepsis, but may in fact represent very different types of biology. And there have been a handful of papers, the first published in 2009 by Hector Wong that looked at pediatric septic shock subtypes. They found three subtypes that naturally occurred within that group. In 2016, a paper by Emma Davenport described the presence of two subtypes. In 2017, Brendan Cicluna published a paper identifying four subtypes in their population of adult patients in the Netherlands. And then in 2018, Sweeney and colleagues, including the work we did here at Duke, identified three distinct subtypes based on an analysis of publicly available gene expression data. And so I think one of some of the important considerations going forward is that I personally think that this holds a lot of promise for the future in terms of understanding sepsis. But as you can see, there are multiple different schemes for these sepsis subtypes, and somehow we're going to need to reconcile those to come up with a uniform way of understanding what's happening with these patients. These patients may also transition from one subtype to another very rapidly, and so we need to understand how to manage that. And then ultimately, we need to be able to link that to clinical decision-making so that these subtypes lead to actionable uh, information. Moving on to tuberculosis, there's been a lot of work in TB, but I'm just going to focus on studies that have looked at TB diagnosis. There have been a handful of studies, and all of these have described gene signatures of variable sizes, generally small ones. The most recently published paper was in 2019 in the journal uh, Clinical Infectious Diseases, where they described a five transcript signature. And AUCs in that study were around 87% which is very similar to what's been reported in a variety of other studies. So it, again, it lends some promise to what might be done in terms of host response for TB-related diagnoses. Finally, for mRNA categories is the category of bacterial versus viral discrimination. And in this context, there have been many studies, including ones that we've contributed. Uh, but the one that I, I highlighted was uh, really the first in this area published by Octavio Ramillo and colleagues in blood in 2007, where they identified a 35-gene signature that allowed them to discriminate patients with confirmed viral infection from those with confirmed bacterial infection. And since that publication, as I mentioned, there have been many different papers that have come out in pediatrics or adults, all of them focused on bacterial and viral disease with signature sizes that varied anywhere from one to hundreds of different genes in the signature. 
All of these signatures are, again, very useful. And uh, more recently, there have been some that have also looked at gene expression in the nose to identify the presence of viral infection. And again, a handful of different research labs developing these and describing these. But all of these gene expression signatures ultimately are only going to be useful if you can actually translate them into a clinical test. And this has been where some other work has been going on. Um, the ideal test is one that will be rapid, will be simple to operate, offer a high degree of multiplexing, meaning that you can measure multiple genes, the expression of multiple mRNAs simultaneously. And in this context, there have been a handful of different attempts to make that translation from just simply having a signature to having a test. Some of them vary in, in time from 15 minutes to as long as two hours. Just by way of example, uh, we at Duke have made a couple of these efforts. One of them has been in collaboration with a company called Qvela. And this is work that was shown at ECMID in 2018, where we translated a viral host response signature to a 45-minute sample-to-answer platform. And in that example, where we tested uh, 68 patients, we showed an accuracy of 98.5%. And then in another example, we had collaborated with BioFire in work that was shown at ID Week in 2018, where we translated a signature for bacterial and viral infection diagnosis onto their platform, evaluated it in 315 subjects, and showed that it had an AUC uh, of 93% for bacterial infection and 92% for viral infection. The last category of host-response biomarkers uh, are the, the non-molecular ones, and these were ones I identified because they're part of the portfolio of projects that BARDA Drive has been supporting. DRIVE is supporting innovative research in different areas, specifically in sepsis, as well as pre-symptomatic detection of viral infection. In the sepsis domain, uh, they're supporting one company called Cytovale, which is developing a sepsis diagnostic test based on cellular deformability. What they do is they take white blood cells, they move them through a flow cytometer, and they impose a stress on the cell, and they look to see how the cell's shape actually changes in response to that stress. And it turns out that cells from patients with sepsis have different biomechanical properties than cells from healthy patients. So this is a very interesting approach. I think it's early in development, but ultimately demonstrating this in larger populations with an appropriate control group uh, will really give us some more useful information as to how feasible this may be. And then the other area that's being developed is that of wearables. There are a number of different wearables that do a variety of different things, from wearables that analyze chemicals in your sweat wearables that look for vital sign variability, for example, heart rate variability, that look for changes in your oxygenation, uh, and then wearables that are sound monitors, things that listen for uh, abnormal uh, breathing and use that to indicate the early onset of some sort of an infection. So all, all of these, again, are early in development. Certainly the wearables exist, but their applicability to infectious disease diagnosis is, is still uh, in the process of being evaluated. And so to, to summarize, uh, there are many biomarker strategies, protein, mRNA, non-molecular, and that results in a very, very large list of biomarkers. One thing to bear in mind is that these different diagnoses that we're looking at from sepsis, uh, bacterial viral discrimination, tuberculosis, they themselves have imperfect reference standards. There is no gold standard to diagnose sepsis. And so it's just something to be aware of uh, that all of these tests are being evaluated against standards that in many cases may actually be worse than the test, which raises some challenges without a doubt. 
rapidly emerging technology, I think, is the greatest disruptor for identifying new biomarkers, but also translating those biomarkers onto clinical platforms that would be uh, amenable to actual clinical practice. And then lastly, just because you can, it doesn't mean that you should. So the fact that we're developing all of these different biomarkers doesn't mean that all of them need to be utilized for every patient. And ultimately, clinical utility studies that help inform diagnostic stewardship need to be a part of the development pipeline so that clinicians can really understand how they should be using these tests in which patients and in what circumstances. And so the, the concluding point is really that uh, you know, there, there may be some hype out there, but we shouldn't let that diminish our hope for the future of biomarkers for infectious disease applications. Great. Thank you again for sharing your knowledge with us, Dr. Salik. And thank you so much for listening.